Good evening and welcome to a very special Memorial Day edition of Let's Talk Bets right here on Radio Catskill. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that our listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way, we'll learn a little something about each other. We sincerely hope to accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed herein are mine alone as a veteran. On May 30th, we will honor those service members whose loyalty to our flag, our Constitution, the principles upon which this country is built, and above all to their fellow citizens, cost them their lives. So the question begs, just how loyal are we the people, and by extension our government, to them? Hold that thought. Each month we bring you the latest news from the Hudson Valley VA Medical Center. Now here is Director Dawn Shaw with the VA Today. On today's show, I'd like to talk about one of the many life-saving programs we're bringing closer to our veterans by beginning to offer it in the Hudson Valley. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. It is also the deadliest cancer affecting patients of the VA. Each year, approximately 7,700 veterans who seek care through the VA are diagnosed with lung cancer most at advanced stages when survival is limited. To assure improved care for this group of veterans, the Lung Precision Oncology Program, or what we like to call LPOP, was established. It's a joint venture with the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Office of Research and Development, and the National Oncology Program Office. And its aim is to transform VA into a system of excellence in cancer care. The goal is to create a national network in lung cancer research and clinical care, and to give clinicians a range of tools to proactively address and treat lung cancer in veterans. In doing so, it will prioritize lung cancer screening to identify early stage disease in a high risk setting. It will also offer genetic testing for those with advanced lung cancer, improve access to precision oncology clinical trials, increase the number of clinical trials to provide new treatment options, and shorten the time frame from research to clinical practice. So the National Lung Cancer Screening Program is a key requirement of the LPOP program. Research has shown that lung cancer screening reduces lung cancer death by 20 to 25%. It has also shown that with screening, 65 to 70% of lung cancers were diagnosed in stage 1A to 2, whereas non-screened are diagnosed often with stage 3 to 4, and an earlier diagnosis equates to a more treatable disease. With an estimated 2.6 million eligible veterans and less than 3% of them getting screened, this is a very important program for veterans. 
Presently, the United States Preventative Services Task Force guidelines are followed for lung cancer screening. To qualify, you must be 50 to 80 years of age, have at least a 20-pack year cigarette history, or one pack a day times 20 years, and are still smoking or have quit within the last 15 years, have no signs or symptoms of lung cancer, and be willing and able to pursue treatment if necessary. Screening is done annually until you age out or have quit for more than 15 years. Getting the follow-up scans is of utmost importance as many cancers are found after the initial one. At VA Hudson Valley, we are in the process of activating this lung cancer screening program, and we're grateful we get to provide this life-saving service to our veterans. Because we're standing up this program locally, we will also start to run clinical trials at Hudson Valley. Presently, VA Hudson Valley patients can participate in trials being run out of the James J. Peters VA in the Bronx. However, they would have to travel there for visits and treatment. The two components of the Lung Precision Oncology Program, which is clinical trials and lung cancer screening, will absolutely enhance the care our veterans receive at VA Hudson Valley by letting them participate closer to their homes while continuing to see the medical providers they know and trust at VA. So please speak with your VA doctor if you think you're a good fit for this program and want to participate. We look forward to continuing to bring new and innovative treatment methods to our veterans and continuing to serve them in the communities we know and love. I also say a big thank you and wish a happy Nurses Month to all the nurses in the VA Hudson Valley area, especially the nurses who have dedicated their careers to serving America's veterans. One of VA Hudson Valley's greatest assets is the VA nurse. I could not be prouder of their individual and collective contributions and sacrifices. My gratitude for VA nurses is boundless, especially for their selfless service during the COVID-19 pandemic. And our nurses have worked long hours in exceptionally challenging environments to provide the compassionate care VA nurses are renowned for. And they deserve our heartfelt appreciation and sincere recognition. Throughout the month, please join me in thanking our phenomenal nursing community and wishing them a happy Nurses Month. Thanks again for having me on, Doug, and thanks to all our veterans. As I write this, my sons are fishing in the west branch of the Delaware River. I can't help but think how lucky I am not to have been deployed to Southeast Asia and that ill-conceived war we called Vietnam. I'm also thankful there is no draft. So what is Memorial Day? Is it a day of celebration? That depends on context and sadly to many Memorial Day has just become the culmination of another three-day weekend, a day to take advantage of the lowest prices of the year to buy a memory foam mattress or perhaps a new car. 
or a day to open the pool, the unofficial beginning of summer. You get the picture. It is a celebration of the lives, character, and courage of our women and men who made the ultimate sacrifice in service to us all. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. This, of course, is the U.S. Military Oath of Enlistment. But more than an oath, it is a covenant that we make with our country. Lately, I have to wonder, what is the covenant our country makes with us in return? Is it the promise to provide the health care that we need without having to fight for it? Is it to ensure succeeding generations are taught the true history of the country so that they understand what we served for and what to avoid? Is it the expectation that our elected officials will actually do the right thing versus tailoring their opinions and their votes to keep themselves in power? Is it our, that our government will act according to our Constitution versus partisan political interest? Is it that those who made the ultimate sacrifice did so to preserve a country worthy of their character, trust, and courage? Well, it is all of the above. Is it fate or luck that determines who will live and who will die? Many veterans suffer from what's called survivor's guilt. The eternal question, why was I saved? It took Jack Murphy 20 years to write this next song about the return of two friends, one in a military transport and one in a body bag. And as you will hear, Jack kept his promise to buy his comrade in arms a cold brew when they reunited back in the world. You had said to me during our conversation that The Promise was your first song, correct? Yes, that's right. All right, so tell us your story about that song. Well, I had always wanted to write a song, to try and write a song about, uh, you know, my experience in Vietnam. And for 24 years, I, it just wouldn't happen. And then uh, one night I sat down, picked up the guitar, and within 15 minutes I had the promise. Okay, was that based upon a real-life experience and, a, and somebody that you knew or a friend that you, uh, friendship yes. that developed in Vietnam? Yes, exactly. And what was his name? Albert J. Carrier III. And he was somebody that you knew from home or somebody that you met over there? No, somebody I met over there. Okay. We had both gotten over there about the same time, so we became friends. Okay, so the but the song is so typical of probably so many other experiences. Oh yes, I'm sure. Yep.
on a bunk in the evening breeze. We sat and talked and watched the trees. We talked to home and the girls we've known and the 57 Chevy that you once owned. We were young and so far from home in a place that we had never known but we were happy and scared so alone we made a pact that very night amid the panic of a firefight to get together when we got out of here we'd meet in philly by you be but that never happened. We got so close in such a very short time. What was mine was yours, and what was yours was mine. You always shared the packages you got from home. A can of spam, some cooling, a plastic cold men. So much to hear from home. Six months down and six to go. It won't be long now before it's time to go We'll be standing on the corner in our old hometown Gassing up that Chevy just to cruise around It's gonna feel so good to be back in the world I'll finally see my family and my favorite girl now That was 24 years ago Why things happen that way I don't really know But here I am staring at your name Standing at the wall in the pouring rain The tears won't stop and I can't see clear But here I am holding on to two cold beers Welcome home My brother On a bunker in the evening breeze We sat and talked and watched the trees We talked to home and the girls we've known And the 57 Chevy that you once owned Welcome home, welcome home to you my brother So initially known as Decoration Day, Memorial Day originated in the years following the Civil War and became an official federal holiday in 1971. The Civil War, which ended in the spring of 1865, claimed almost 700,000 lives, more than any other conflict in U.S. history, and therefore required the establishment of our country's first national cemeteries. By the late 1860s, Americans in various towns and cities had begun to hold springtime tributes to those fallen soldiers, decorating their graves with flowers and reciting prayers. 
Now, it's, it's still debatable exactly where this tradition originated. Numerous different communities may have independently initiated memorial gatherings. Some records show that one of the earliest Memorial Day commemorations was organized by a group of freed slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, less than a month after the Confederacy surrendered in 1865. Nevertheless, in 1966, our federal government declared Waterloo, New York, the official birthplace of Memorial Day. Now listen now as Seneca County historian Walt Gable explains how this came about to our own Jason Dole. Hi everyone, I'm Walt Gable and I'm the Seneca County Historian. We're here in Waterloo, New York, and I want to tell you about how Waterloo came to be recognized as the official birthplace of Memorial Day as recognized by proclamation of Governor Nelson Rockefeller, then President Lyndon Johnson, and followed up by Congressional Resolution as the official birthplace of Memorial Day, those recognitions coming in 1966. And there's no small coincidence to that date because it was 100 years after the first real Memorial Day celebration took place in Waterloo, New York. A local druggist by the name of Henry C. Wells conceived of the idea that it was really vitally important that the local people take a day off from work and go to all of the cemeteries in Waterloo, place flowers and pine boughs on the graves of Civil War soldiers. We had 51 men of Waterloo die because of their service in the, mil in the Civil War. 51 men in a rather small community. And so on that day, May 5th, 1866, the first such celebration was held in Waterloo. There were red, white, and blue banners placed around town. All of the stores were closed. The people gathered. It was an extremely hot day, but they managed to go to every one of the cemeteries in the village, and they placed flowers and pine boughs on the graves of the Civil War soldiers. It was so hot, and the ordeal was so great that Henry Wells himself was actually taken physically sick and probably died a few months later because of the overexertion on that particular day. You're saying that the man that spearheaded this memorial effort actually followed through with it and it may have well cost him his health and life. Yes, yes. and the next year General John B. Murray was more actively involved. Now, he was a war hero, a local war hero, but he had also become the county clerk after the Civil War. And he knew General Logan, who was the commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, the national organization of Union veterans of the Civil War. And John Murray prevailed upon General Logan the idea that it would be appropriate for all Grand Army of the Republic chapters throughout the United States to hold similar kinds of Memorial Day celebrations. And Logan issued what became known as General Order Number 11, a commandment that starting the next year, that would have been 1868, that 
every GAR chapter had to have some kind of Memorial Day observance. And the two major reasons why Waterloo is recognized as the official birthplace of Memorial Day is that starting in 1866, it held annually, every year thereafter, Memorial Day observances. And secondly, there was a direct connection between General Murray of of Waterloo and General Logan, the commander of the Grand Army of the Republic, issuing General Order Number 11 that all GAR chapters had to hold a Memorial Day observance annually starting in May of 1868. As we observe this solemn day by visiting cemeteries and memorials, some people wear a red poppy in remembrance of those fallen in war, a tradition that began with World War I and the following poem. Flanders fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below we are the dead short days ago we lived felt dawn saw sunset glow loved and were loved and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. As the last echoes of the marching bands have faded down Main Street, the last hot dog has been eaten, and Uncle Joe has had one too many brews, and the little ones have been tucked into bed exhausted, we move on to tomorrow and put Memorial Day back on the shelf until next year. After all, summer has begun, and we have paid our one-day tribute to those heroes that have given their lives for us. When we think about Memorial Day, we often think in terms of cold, hard numbers representing human lives lost. It's perhaps easier that way. But what about those not included in those statistics? These are the women and men who have perished after they left the battlefield as a result of their service. While it might be the latent effects of exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam, or inhalation of airborne particulates produced by the burn pits in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other sandy locales. Horrific physical injuries, the insidious clutches of PTS, substance abuse, homelessness, and suicide. If you account for all the wars and conflicts of U.S. involvement, including the Revolutionary War, more than 1,354,664 have perished in actual conflict, however, another 
500,000 have been wounded. How many of these have perished as a result of their service after the fact? More recent example is Vietnam. Officially, 58,220 service members lost their lives in that conflict. Today, however, the number of those who ultimately died as a result of their service in that war exceeds 350,000. Our friend Larry Winters had an idea. In this poem, Billboard, written about Vietnam, he suggests that every town should have a billboard as you enter. On the billboard should be the names of all those who have died in war, plus those who have taken their own lives. Every community in America could have a billboard as you enter the community that lists those soldiers killed in combat and a list of those soldiers and vets who have taken their own lives. This is the true cost of the bounty we all enjoy in the land of the free. Vietnam vets who have committed suicide are now far beyond the 58,000 killed in the war. Today's soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan wars that committed suicide is five times the number killed in combat. Is the media making enough of the suicides occurring in the military and in the veteran population? And is the public able to tolerate listening? I refuse to believe folks don't care that their loved ones, friends, and community members are choosing death over living. No one institution seems to know why the numbers are so high. But it is all too obvious that some of what is going on is the after-effects of war, as well as soldiers' fears of a second or third deployment. It may be facing a war that started when many of today's recruits were eight or nine years old. Some soldiers may feel shame or fear for not wanting to go to war that a country supports, so instead they kill themselves. I really don't know, and I don't think anyone else does either. Do soldiers and vets who take their own lives belong on the same honor roll that the dead combat soldiers are on? I say yes if we acknowledge the moral and psychological ramifications created by war on soldiers. The military and government must stop trying to explain these human sacrifices with confusing statistics. In the minds of suicide victims, there are a panoply of reasons, from guilt, rage, betrayal, love for those who they feel do not deserve living with their torment. For some, they may need a moral payback for lines that they feel they may have crossed. These men and women do not deserve judgment from the society that they once protected. Larry Winters, ex-Marine, licensed mental health counselor. 
We'll return to our special Memorial Day edition of Let's Talk Vets right here on Radio Catskill WJFF. Welcome back as we continue our radio tribute to our fallen American heroes. So radio used to be called the theater of the mind because, as with books, you have to envision the spoken words and the scenes they describe. At his first inauguration, January 20th, 1981, Ronald Reagan spoke about the sacrifice of our service members, and he painted a magnificent picture of the mall and the memorials and Arlington National Cemetery. The willingness of some to give their lives so that others might live never fails to evoke in us a sense of wonder and mystery. Words spoken by President Reagan at Arlington National Cemetery, a garden of stone. Resting place for more than 240,000 American military men and women. One gets that feeling on this hallowed ground, the same poignant feeling that one gets looking across the rows of white crosses and stars of David in Europe, in the Philippines, and all other military cemeteries here in our own land. Each grave marks the resting place of an American hero, all different and yet all alike. As we honor their memory, let us pledge that their lives, that their sacrifices, that their valor shall be justified and remembered for as long as God gives life to this great nation. This is the first time in our history that this ceremony has been held, as you've been told, on this west front of the Capitol. Standing here, one faces a magnificent vista, opening up on this city's special beauty and history. At the end of this open mall are those shrines to the giants on whose shoulders we stand. Directly in front of me, a monument to a monumental man, George Washington, father of our country. A man of humility who came to greatness reluctantly. He led America out of revolutionary victory into infant nationhood. Off to one side, the stately memorial to Thomas Jefferson, a declaration of independence flames with his eloquence. And then beyond the reflecting pool, the dignified columns of the Lincoln Memorial. Whoever would understand in his heart the meaning of America will find it in the life of Abraham Lincoln. 
Beyond those moments, those monuments to heroism, is the Potomac River, and on the far shore, the sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small-town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Abraham Lincoln's words at the dedication of Gettysburg, another garden of stone, are as poignant today and indeed as powerful as they were in 1863. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who died here, that the nation might live. This we may in all propriety do, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have hallowed it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, while it can never forget what they did here. It is rather for us the living, we here, be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave their last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. 
sacrifices, that their valor shall be justified and remembered, for as long as God gives life to this great nation. Gardens of stone, gardens of honor. There's another date in May worth remembering. May 1st is Loyalty Day. Unlike the celebration of socialism and communism in some countries, benignly labeled International Workers' Day, it is a day for American citizens to reaffirm their loyalty to the United States and to recognize the heritage of American freedom. Some of us can remember when comedy required real talent to tell a good story and make us laugh at ourselves versus a string of expletives and a dialogue with maximum shock value often designed to hurt someone. Red Skelton was the quintessential comedian. He could also be extremely poignant when the occasion called for a sober tone. Here he is with one of my favorite routines. It underscores what the Pledge of Allegiance really means or really should mean to every American. When I was a small boy in Vincennes, Indiana, I heard, I think, one of the most outstanding speeches I ever heard in my life. I think it compares with the Sermon on the Mount, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and Socrates' speech to the students. We had just finished reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, and he called us all together, and he says, uh, boys and girls, I have been listening to you recite the Pledge of Allegiance all semester, and it seems that it has become monotonous to you. Or could it be you do not understand the meaning of each word? If I may, 
I would like to recite the pledge and give you a definition for each word. I, me, an individual, a committee of one, pledge, dedicate all of my worldly good to give without self-pity, allegiance, my love and my devotion to the flag, our standard, O oh glory, a symbol of courage, and wherever she waves, there is respect, because your loyalty has given her a dignity that shouts freedom is everybody's job. Of the united, that means we have all come together. States, individual communities that have united into 48 great states. 48 individual communities with pride and dignity and purpose, all divided by imaginary boundaries, yet united to a common cause, and that's love of country, of America. And to the republic, a republic, a sovereign state in which power is invested into the representatives chosen by the people to govern, and the government is the people. And it's from the people to the leaders, not from the leaders to the people, for which it stands. One nation, meaning so blessed by God, indivisible, incapable of being divided with liberty, which is freedom, the right of power for one to live his own life without fears, threats, or any sort of retaliation and justice. The principle and qualities of dealing fairly with others for all, for all. That means, boys and girls, it's as much your country as it is mine. Now let me hear you recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Since I was a small boy, two states have been added to our country, and two words have been added to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. Wouldn't it be a pity if someone said that is a prayer and that be eliminated from our schools too? Our friend Bill Capito is a familiar presence in Sullivan County veteran circles and last year he read a very personal letter from his uncle written in World War II. In this letter, his uncle predicts his own death. And the next day, sadly, that premonition came true. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is William Capito. And what I'm going to do tonight is read a letter from one of the county residents. This was January 12, 1944. Dear Mom, Pop, and Sisters, I'm sure I can express my thoughts better by writing a Jewish letter but time is so short and right now so very precious that speed is very essential. 
Now, I'm going to write a lot of silly things, so take it as base value. If I come out at this alive, you will never receive it. But if the instructions are carried out accordingly, it will be all over with me. I'm only taking this step so that you will all know that I went into this thing willingly and not reluctantly. I just wrote I was slightly crazy because they would be very far from the truth. I was inducted because there was a war to fight and certainly that wasn't any of my doing. I believe that I received was written in cards and nothing would change it. You can also realize that as an American, I had something to fight for and because I'm Jewish, I had something more to fight for. I wasn't going to let somebody else do my fighting for me. Anyway, I figure that whatever fate had in store for me, I wasn't in any position to change her plans. I write this so you would know what frame of mind I was in the day before we go out. I'm sitting at a table in a little Italian farmhouse, which is not too far from the front. I'm not only writing, but there's quite a few waiting to get a seat to write their letters. I wonder if there's anyone else who has the same plans that I have, namely writing in the same view as myself. My morale is high. I feel that luck is with me, but anything could happen. This fighting business is only a lot of common sense and a lot of luck because I suppose luck was against me. I'm in a swell outfit and since being here, made a number of friends that I know I can count on and naturally vice versa. Quite a few things might happen and my sister. So if God's will, I will still be alive, but the chances are very slim if you are notified by the government. I want you to feel proud of the fact I made the supreme sacrifice, as they say, and you can hold your head high knowing that I never did anything that would make you ashamed of me. I want life to go on as usual as far as the family is concerned and that your husband comes home and you live happily and a normal life. I haven't any regrets. I think I know what life is. I know that it's going to be hard on Ma and Pa, but I wish, I mean, I demand that they carry on with their life and not let my death in any way deter them from enjoying a peaceful life. It's hard to explain my feelings because I'm the best of health right now and only to pray to God to be able to write happier letters than this one. I spent the day being present at the gathering of a battalion today and was thrilled to have General Mark Clark present the Congressional Medal of Honor to a lieutenant for doing combat that really deserved better than that. Four other non-commissioned officers were also given the DSC. General Trescott was there, so I feel that very seldom is such a cemetery possibly seen by a soldier. Just got under the wire and being assigned to this outfit. It really gave me a thrill. You probably see them in the newsreels. Tonight, I attended the Jewish services conducted by a Protestant chaplain. I was accompanied by a staff sergeant, and it relieved me a great deal. There are only 12 of us beside the chaplain, but we also took part in the services. He was a swell guy. If you think it's easy to end this letter, you're mistaken. At the end, I must say again, I'm begging you, don't take it too hard and hold your head high. I'm going to do everything in my power to do my job to keep this letter from being delivered. But as you wouldn't know anything about it, the unforeseen didn't happen. Love, Willie. Now, this letter was written by my uncle, who was from Hurleyville, New York. 
and he had a premonition that the next day he was going out on a patrol with about nine other guys, and he wasn't coming back. And what happened was he and the nine other guys were out on the patrol, and there was a company behind them. And uh, he was the scout. He got up on the top of the hill, and he saw a German battalion or company coming up behind him. He got up and yelled. They heard him, and they shot him. The nine other guys were captured and taken to a prison camp. Uh, his body was never found, and uh, we've been for years. We've been searching to see if you know we could find him, but we never did. Sad, as you can imagine, because this is my uncle who I never got to meet, and I am named after him. And I appreciate everybody who remembers all these men and women that were killed. And again, I want to thank WJFF for uh, letting me say a few words on the radio. We wish to acknowledge the following folks and organizations for their contributions to this program this evening. Bill Capito for reading his letter from his uncle. Larry Winters for his composition, The Billboard. Jack Murphy, Vietnam vet singer-songwriter for his original song, The Pledge. Jack Scully, Vietnam vet singer-songwriter for his original composition, Have You Been to the Wall? Walt Gable, Seneca County historian for background on Memorial Day, and Red Skelton for his rendition of the Pledge of Allegiance. The U.S. Coast Guard Band for the narration and music of Gardens of Stone, Jack McRae for his dramatic reading of In Flanders Field. And, of course, you for joining us once again on Let's Talk Vets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so we can talk about them on the air. And if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak with someone, here's some numbers to remember. The Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255, and press 1 to speak with someone. Send a text message to 838255 to connect with a VA responder. Or you can start a confidential online chat session at veteranscrisisline.net slash chat. And don't forget that Let's Talk Vets is now widely available as a podcast. You can download it at WJFF Radio Let's Talk Vets podcast show page or your favorite source for podcasts. You can drop us an email at vets at wjffradio.org. Until our next formation, I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. We'll leave you tonight with an original song from Vietnam vet singer-songwriter Jack Scully. Have you been to the wall? history. Those who survived have never been free. Fifty years of memories seem like yesterday. No place to run, no place to hide, nothing to fill that hole inside. And the whiskey stopped working. Time ago. 
Our country is not perfect by any means, but then again, no country is, and neither, for that matter, are any of us. 
It is the pursuance of our founding principles and our justice system that used to set us apart from other countries. The sum of a life's work or nation's worth should be judged by the net gain of good accomplished, not the mistakes made. To allow our history to be rewritten is to dishonor all those who have given their lives for our freedom. If our fallen patriots had a voice, they would probably say to us, what the hell happened? Why are you fighting against each other? Save your wrath for the enemy. Of course, they would be speaking in classical terms of national forces at war. But today we might ask the question, is the real enemy amongst us? Remember the prophetic words of Abraham Lincoln in 1859, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This is your host, Staff Sergeant Sandberg. Good night, and God bless America. Company dismissed.